0: Scott Harold is known for his interviews. Boy, you're asking great questions. I think you're in the right career path, my (laughs) friend. I really do. Scott Harold's
1: SOS Radio podcast starts starts now.
0: We're talking about the genius of Jesus on SOS Radio with Erwin McManus. He's a best-selling author and lead pastor at Mosaic in Los Angeles. Hey, Merry Christmas, Erwin. Hey, Merry Christmas to you, Scott. What a crazy year we've lived through. We survived another one. (laughs) Yeah, so what's Christmas
1: like in Vegas? A lot of lights? Oh, you guys have lights all year long, so.
0: <laughs> you know, with fall, we have basically one color, you know, so we celebrate the green and red during Christmas because for October and November, it was all different shades of brown. <laughs> oh, that's
1: hilarious. Well, man, I love Christmas. It's my, uh, probably my favorite season. I mean, I love Christmas. Who doesn't love Christmas, right? And I love Christmas music. I Just everything around the warmth and the celebration. And, and I love giving gifts, so it's just so much fun.
0: Uh, We're going to talk about The Genius of Jesus. It's the name of your new book. And it's funny because a lot of the Christmas songs that we play talk about this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, it's a genius thought. And I feel like a lot of our minds want to explode when we want to try to even comprehend what that means.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you you know, it's interesting to me because when I wrote The Genius of Jesus, a huge part of it was, you know, I I mean, I believe in Jesus and, you know, my whole life revolves around Jesus, God stepping into human history, taking on flesh and blood, being crucified, raised, you know, from the dead. But I, I wanted to look at Jesus from a almost like a historical perspective and ask, was he actually a genius? You, you know, I know he was God, but if you remove all the, the miracles and stuff, does Jesus I like, qualify as a historic genius? And if he does, what was his genius? And and then why is it that for the last you know two, three hundred years where there have been all these studies on geniuses, he's never made a single list of geniuses. And so I just thought it'd be a really important kind of thing to unwrap of who is this man, Jesus, and was he a genius? And then what was his genius? And that for me was really exciting.
0: Uh, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. What a genius thought, right? We're talking with Erwin McManus on SWS Radio. I mean, Irwin, you have a master's degree and a doctorate yourself, but you spent your entire adult life basically studying genius and searching for God. And it's like one part of that centers on human potential. The other part centers on faith. But do you see those pursuits as mutually exclusive?
1: No, no, I don't. I think that every human being expresses an aspect of faith whether they believe in God or not because the moment you believe in the future you're believing in something that doesn't exist and so actually human beings can't exist without an act of faith the moment you schedule something for tomorrow that's an act of faith and that you're actually scheduling something into the uncreated unknown I mean that's crazy there's no other species on this planet that actually has a perception of the future Every other animal just lives in the present. And what we need to realize is humans are designed in such a way we can't even live without some expression of faith in our lives. And I think that's a part of what to me is like fascinating about understanding human capacity, that God created us in his image and likeness. And it's why we have imagination. It's why we dream up things and then create them. I mean, we shadow the very nature of God. You know, so it's human beings who invented the cell phone, invented Wi-Fi, it's human beings that, you know, created all the technologies that have changed uh, the human experience. I mean, it's human beings that that harnessed fire. There is no other species that does what we do, and it's because we're the only one that's created in the image of God.
0: You know, how have you learned to have peace about the future when you realize you frankly have no control over it, because it hasn't happened yet?
1: Well, here's the thing. You do have control in the aspect that you're able to create And I think this is where sometimes as Christians, we get a little confused in the process, is that the choices you make today create the future you're going to live in tomorrow. And, you know, parents understand this. You tell your kids, you know, Scott, are you married? Do you have kids?
0: Mm -hmm. I have two middle school kids. And yes, been married for about 18 years. Right. So you tell your kids, eat your vegetables, you know, because it'll
1: make you healthy. Right. You, You know, you tell them, do your homework so that you can. well in school and go to college or you know date the right person so that you are not miserable the rest of your life when you get married we understand when we're raising our kids that their choices actually are part of creating their future and one of the things i always would have on my wall was the most spiritual act you will engage in today is choosing and we think of praying as spiritual and worship as spiritual and reading the bible as spiritual and sharing our faith as spiritual but every one of those things cannot happen until you choose. You have to choose to pray. You have to choose to fast. You have to choose to worship. You have to choose to serve. And so actually, the most powerful spiritual act in a human being's life is the power of choosing. And choosing creates a future. And I think that's where, you know, yes, the future's out of our control in the big theme of things. God is the one who's over all of history. But it doesn't mean we're powerless in relationship to the future. You can make choices today that will create a better future, not just for you, but for
0: others. We're talking with Erwin McManus today at SWS Radio. He's a best-selling author and lead pastor at Mosaic over in Hollywood. Erwin, you wrote a new book. It's called The Genius of Jesus. And There's a line I love in there. It says, when you see the true nature of Jesus' genius, like how he engaged people from every walk of life and how he dealt with controversy and conflict and opposition, like in a world that's so divided today, What can we take away from the way that Jesus dealt with difficult people? Because he was able to model both conviction and grace in a way that I haven't figured out how to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is that we take Jesus' model and we actually apply it in reverse. There were times Jesus was very harsh and times Jesus was unexpectedly gracious. He was always harsh on the religious and gracious and graceful to the sinner the unbeliever. And what we've done in Christianity is that we're incredibly gracious to the people who agree with us and incredibly judgmental and condemning to the people who disagree with us. And so ironically, we just have to learn how to flip this thing around. You know, the judgment we're supposed to have is toward our own lives and those who carry our faith together. And we're supposed to like call each other out and get things right in our lives. And uh, but even there, you're supposed to do it in a gracious way, in a loving way. But with an unbelieving world, we're actually not supposed to have expectations on them. We're supposed to actually live with mercy and grace and compassion toward them. And I don't think we really like that. (laughs) And and I think we want to be condemning and judgmental of people who disagree with us and kind and gracious to people who agree with us. And what Jesus was saying is, actually, if you love people who love you, you've really done nothing. You've done just what what the pagans do. It's when you love the person who doesn't love you, that's actually the miraculous expression of God's love in your life.
0: Now, Erwin, what do you think would happen if we studied and emulated Jesus, not just through like the whole lens of him being God, but as a genius that shows us a little bit more about what it means to live life fully, like, kingdom-minded?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that really struck me about genius is that genius isn't transferable. If you... Spend your life with Picasso, you're not going to become a world-renowned painter. And if you spend your life with Mozart, you're not going to become, you know, a historically claimed composer. But here's the thing: the genius of Jesus is transferable. And you know, we talk about life change or transformation. And I just used a, a secular language for a spiritual reality. What happens with Jesus is when you come to Jesus, his genius is actually transferable. He puts his genius inside of you. And, You know, I've been married almost 40 years, and I look at my life and I think I could have never maintained like the compass to be married for 40 years, to have been a good husband, to be a good dad, uh, to live the life I had if it hadn't been for Jesus. Jesus actually gave me a genius that I did not have. You know, I, I'm the product of, of a divorced family. In fact, multiple divorces. I'd never seen a marriage work in my life. Uh, my wife was an orphan who uh, came from a devastated, broken home. She'd never seen a marriage work in her life. Both of us had all the material for disaster. It was actually just the genius of Jesus teaching us how to be forgiving, how to be compassionate, how to place someone above ourselves, how to not be egotistical, how to not be self-centered, how to live our lives in relationship was actually the work of Jesus in us. And it was and it made us look like geniuses. People go, how have you been married this long? Or how did you raise these great kids? Or how have you lived this life? And I'm going, literally, Jesus transferred his genius into us and allowed us to live our life at a higher level than we could have without him.
0: When did you first learn that the genius that Jesus has is actually transferable? I can't say I
1: know when. I think it's something I've been grappling with for 40 years, really. In my, I became a follower of Christ in college, and I was always trying to figure out how this— Thing called transformation works, you know. I've never been good at, at accepting things just the way people say. Hey, this is just what happens. I go, yep. Yeah, how does it happen? And for about ten years after I became a follower of Jesus, I spent ten years of my life with people in like the drug culture and the and the underground gang world, and I was really watching, going, why is it that one person changes, one person doesn't? Why is it that one person gives her life to Jesus and their life is radically changed, another one? gives her life to Jesus, and there's very little change. And, you know, we don't like to say that out loud, right? Because we're supposed to say, hey, whenever you give life to Jesus, you change. But you know as well as I do that we don't all change at the same level, at the same rate, and in the same way. And it seems like some people have to give their lives to Jesus ten times, and it still doesn't seem to work. <laughs> you know? and, and so I started going, okay, wait a minute. Are there principles in the Bible that actually have to be applied for that change to happen in your life? And so, you know, when I started writing this book and I started going back to some of my uh, lectures and messages in the past, and I've been talking about the genius of Jesus for, you know, maybe 20 years, but it really culminated when I started writing this book that there's never been a book written on the genius of Jesus. And how could this be overlooked? And I felt like, I may not write the best book on the genius of Jesus, but I'm going to write the first book on it because I think it's one of the most unexplored mysteries of uh, who God is becoming a man, which I think is amazing.
0: Now we all want to be smarter and we all want to grow, but we're all sort of insecure if we're being honest too. We're talking with Erwin McManus today at Swiss radio. He's a best-selling author. He's the lead pastor at Mosaic in Los Angeles. But Erwin, where do you see the relationship between genius and untapped potential?
1: Studies show that children under the age of five, almost overwhelmingly display the characteristics of what we would identify as genius. But by the age of 12, almost all of those characteristics are lost. So you look at about 98% of children actually test or reflect genius in their nature. And by the time we're 12, 15 years old, only 2% of humans actually demonstrate any level of genius. And so what I began to wonder is, is genius something that's rare because it doesn't exist, or is genius something that's rare? Because it isn't protected and developed and nurtured. And I actually think it's the second. I think that there is unique genius inside of every human being. Not that everyone is a genius, but there, that there's genius in all of us. But that undeveloped potential. Sometimes it's because of brokenness. You know, sometimes you experience trauma in your childhood and you never get past it, or you, you know, you you're really neglected emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually. And that genius is lost. And, but even in those cases, sometimes that genius isn't lost. In the worst situations, some people, that genius still emerges. But then it's um, almost sociopathic at times. A person is, quote, a categorical genius, but they're completely without empathy and completely without value for other human beings. And, and what I want people to do is to grow and discover their genius in becoming fully human, It's not just about becoming better at math or becoming a better painter or a better scientist or a better composer. It's about becoming a better human. And that's the genius of Jesus, is that he restores our humanity and makes us fully human again.
0: Now, years back, Carol Dweck over at Stanford University studied the way that students learn in school. Maybe you've seen some of that research, like the whole idea of do you have a fixed mindset or do you have more of a growth Mm -hmm. mindset? Like, are you born and you're wired up and you're good at math and science or you're better at language arts and communication or vice versa? You're good with your hands, but you're never going to want to sit there and work out geometry and, you know, do math problems in your head when you're driving. (laughs) You know, it's like with music,
1: people ask. You know, what kind of music do you like? And actually, what we find out with children is that children don't know what kind of music they like. They like the kind of music they know. You know, I was introduced to Beethoven and Liszt when I was probably four or five years old. So I liked classical music when I was a kid. And then later I was introduced to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and I loved rock music. And later I, you know, was introduced to trip hop and and a lot of, linear you know, electronic music. And so I ended up loving that kind of music. And I was never really introduced to country music. And so I never liked country music. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it was way later that I, was, uh, I experienced the opera. And I'm like, hey, that's not really my thing. And I think a lot of it is because you like what you know. You just It's not that you know what you like. And I think with children, I do think we have a genetic predisposition for the kinds of things that we'll be good at. I think that God has placed in our DNA certain things that if we develop, we're going to be great at. But I also think that our brains are lazy. And if your brain thinks it doesn't need it, it doesn't want it. My wife asked me years ago, do you think humans are capable of of learning anything? And I said, humans are capable of learning anything necessary for survival. There is this interesting tribe called the Baca people, and they're in the most dangerous ecotonic system in the world. And the children by the age of 10 have a PhD level knowledge of botany. And the reason they do is because it's the most dangerous ecosystem in the world, with those kind of poisonous plants and insects and animals. And so, if you don't have a PhD level knowledge of botany, you die. And, you know, and and you look across the world. You have the Haravatara Indians in Mexico who like can run seventy plus miles a day, and because that's what's necessary for survival. They don't know it's impossible to run seventy miles a day. They just think it's normal. You know, and so if we grow up thinking. All we need is to look at our cell phones. That's what all we're going to be good at. You know. And uh, I don't remember a single phone number anymore except for mine. <laughs> I don't know my wife's number. I don't know my kids' numbers. But there was a time where I could remember you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 phone numbers easy without even thinking it was an intellectual exercise. It was just normal to know everyone's phone number because you didn't have a place you could keep it when we don't use it, we lose it. And when we don't think we need it, we actually neglect it. And I think this is true with children. I think one of the hardest things as a kid is you're sitting in class going, how is this going to help me? Because like my life doesn't really need a lot of what they taught me. And you know, one of the most frustrating things for me is you look back, elementary school, high school, and college and master's degree, 90% of what they taught me is worthless to my life. And, but they never taught me how to do my taxes, you know, which I really, really needed to learn how to do. they never taught me how to be a smart investor. They never taught me how to start a company. They never taught me how to be an entrepreneur. Like a lot of the things you actually need if you're going to grow your world, you don't learn in school. And you know, you don't learn emotional intelligence anymore in school, which is probably the most important, critical ingredient for success. your EQ is going to have more effect on your success than your IQ. And so when you're talking about like developing children, I think the key is really realizing that yes, children are going to have a natural affinity. And if you see a child is great at math, you should put them in six math classes, not six other classes to try to make them equally as good at everything. We should have a system that identifies as early as possible what a child is naturally great at, what they're passionate about, and then begin to build a curriculum that actually advances that unique gifting and skill.
0: Now, Christmas one of my favorite times of the year because we remember how God sent his one and only son into our world, and he did that through a teenage mom and the guy that she was pledged to be married to, and then she has to go to him and say, hey, uh, I'm pregnant. It's not yours. do you want to proceed here? I mean, you think about the genius of the Christmas story, Erwin. What do you notice in that?
1: Well, I mean, I notice a lot of things. I notice that the Magi that everybody has on their nativity set, that they're actually uh, magicians. That's the word magi comes from the same etymology as the word magician. And so they were actually alchemists who worshiped a different religion. They were Persians and they were not astronomers. They were astrologers who believed that the stars would actually give them uh, an insight to the future. And God used their understanding of how the gods communicated to get them to Jesus. And so I look and go, God will reach you wherever you are if you're searching for the truth. And I go, wow, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people that were waiting for the Messiah, were just a few feet away from Jesus, unaware that God had entered history. But these magi from Persia are traveling the world knowing that God is about to change the course of humanity's history. And, and that's a reminder to me that proximity is not intimacy. And when we think we're far away from God, it is not about location. It is about the posture of our hearts.
0: When you think about this Christmas season, the last year that we've lived through, what's the heart of the Christmas story that you hope more people in America can wrap their heart around this year?
1: Yeah, that God is for us. You know, one of the things that I had to really struggle through in coming to faith was, you know, why Jesus? You know, why not Buddhism or, you know, Islam or atheism or you know whatever you know shintoism and and every religion and every philosophy tells us what we need to do to get to god or to get to heaven or to get to enlightenment only jesus tells us what god needed to do to get to us and so every other religion tells us you need to do this to get accepted by god and then jesus flips it completely upside down by saying no no This is what God needed to do to get to you, because you couldn't get to God, so God got to you. And I hope what people realize in the story of Jesus is the proactivity of God's love, the relentlessness of God's love, and that God isn't passively waiting for us to find Him, that God is dynamically pursuing us until we wake up and realize that love has been hunting us down every moment of our life.
0: Thanks for listening to the SOS Radio podcast with Scott Harold. If this discussion encouraged you, feel free to share it with your friends on social media.